we are jumping back into Romans. And if you were with us any period of time ago, you remember we took a, a, a break from Romans to go into our Advent uh, season of Christmas and longing for Jesus. And, and then from there, we started off the new year saying, God, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to emphasize where we are? And we just felt as, as a leadership to, to pray and fast together. And so we did that for a week, and then through that time, we went through a sermon series called Connected in Communion, this whole idea of the reason why we have fellowship with one another is because of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us, and that's why we go to the tables of communion every Sunday is to remind ourselves to apply the gospel to our lives. Um, and it just seems like God, in his kindness for us, over these past few months has just built unity in the family. You just feel, I mean, even in worship today, guys, and you just feel like you wanted to like almost do the cheesy thing and link shoulders together, right? And like, no? Okay, all right. <laughs> I wanted to almost. And, but it just feels like God's building in us a, a beautiful picture of himself. And, uh, and it gets reflected. It, it often manifests itself in unity and camaraderie and love for one another and a desire to be with one another and to think the best of one another, you know? Um, and so from that, we are going back into our, our sermon series in the book of Romans. And just to do a quick little, try to recap, what we, we understand the book of Romans is this is Paul's really dissertation on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Paul, unfortunately, never got to get to the ch church in Rome. Um, and he always wanted to, he was, it seems like he wanted to establish a base camp in Rome so that the gospel would spread everywhere. But while he's uh, desiring to get to Rome, he writes his, what I would say is probably the crown jewel of the gospel and explanation in the book of Romans. And so he's trying to explain to this church about the size that we are. Sometimes we think of the book of Romans and he's writing to this church, there's probably thousands and thousands of people. It wasn't. There's about 100 people in this church, and Paul's writing to, and he's saying, hey, guys, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is what, this is what Jesus has done in you. This is why we live as Christians. This is why we call ourselves Christians. This is why we're able to d differentiate us from the world, and this is what the world looks like, but this is for you who are in Christ. This is what you look like. Don't forget it. Live in that, and this is why you can continue to do that, because our God is so gracious. He's amazing. And he, he just lays out the gospel one yard at a time, one inch at a time. It just every step by step, this is how the gospel applies to your life. And now we get to Romans chapter 8. And if we're going to say that Romans is, is, so to speak, a masterpiece, it's kind of the, the, the centrality of our understanding of the New Testament of the gospel, I would say Romans 8 is the, what the French would say, the pièce de résistance, right? See, that's my French coming out. No one was impressed with that. I practiced that all week. I don't even know if I said it right. I just clicked on the Google and it like said it, announced it, and maybe if you're a French major, you're grumpy and you want to leave the church now because I didn't say it right, but it is the crown jewel for us. And, and it speaks about the life in the spirit and how we've been adopted as sons and daughters in Christ and the beautiful thing is not only is this chapter about life in the Spirit a masterpiece for us, it's also what my friend Alan Frau says. He says it's kryptonite. It's kryptonite against insecurity. It's, it's kryptonite against our propensity and our oftentimes wanting to uh, live our Christian life 
in our own effort, in our own strength, or living it from a place of religious activities where we, we're trying to please God by being good, moral boys and girls. And what it does is it shows us the beauty of what it means to be in Christ. If, if we're in Christ, then we have the Spirit. So um, we're going to dive into that this morning, Romans 8. And I want to say this if we're talking about life in the Spirit this morning. Some of us right now might be going, ooh, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, okay? Yes, we are going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's all right. We are a church that is Trinitarian. What does that mean? We believe the Godhead, that there's God the Father, there's God the Son, and God the Spirit. We're not Father, Son, Holy Bible. We're Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And you know, even today, I let, you know, uh, Lorelai comes up and, and she encourages us to not fear the Spirit's leading. I, I want to just make a promise to you, Southlands. We're not going to be a church that is going to, we're not looking for the weird and the crazy and the like, you know, just this fanatical, bizarre. Now, the reality is the, when the Holy Spirit comes, sometimes it's a little scary because it's outside of our comfort zone. But we never want to put the emphasis on the strange things that the Holy Spirit does. We're not going to be the church that, like, if somebody, for some reason, the Holy Spirit's just come upon them, we're going to come over and put the microphone in, like, let's now change our whole meeting to see what the emphasis of what. No, what we're, we believe that the Holy Spirit is God, and in his godness and his kindness and his love, there's security in knowing that the Holy Spirit's leading us. And if the Holy Spirit's God, he's good, and he's sovereign, he always has our best in mind. And sometimes he leads us into places that are uncomfortable, and that's okay. We say we trust him. And so I, I want us to unpackage this truth this morning. What it means to be a church, a disciple of Jesus, who's living life in the Spirit. So often what we've done is we've kind of thought of the Holy Spirit wrongly. I know I grew up in church cultures um, that either overly emphasized the person of the Holy Spirit or de-emphasized the person of the Holy Spirit. And if you grew up in church, maybe during the 80s, 90s, you, you may have experienced some of the over-emphasizing of the Holy Spirit, where there were times where everything was about the Holy Spirit moving, and it was, it was all, that was the, the, the reason why we exist as church, is to get all the feels. You get goosebumps, right? And all these kind of things, and people were falling, all these kind of things. And then some people, the church leadership particularly said, man, we don't want to have anything to do with that stuff anymore. And so we're going to swing the pendulum way to the other side. And what we're going to say is that the Holy Spirit's only just the person of the, of the Godhead, and he's only to be understood as from a from a biblical scriptural understanding, and it's only through our intellect that we know the Holy Spirit. And I would say, friends, while we don't want to overemphasize, we also don't want to be guilty of de-emphasizing the role of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And it's that truth intention again. It's like, man, we have to walk a straight line, and what does scripture help us understand about life in the Spirit? And so you may be sitting here this morning and thinking, the Holy Spirit's like a crazy uncle that nobody wants to invite to your party, right? The crazy Uncle Larry. If you're an Uncle Larry here this morning, we love you so, so much, okay? We have a crazy Uncle Lenny. Maybe it's a crazy Uncle Lenny. Lenny, if you're listening to this, we love you, okay? And it's like crazy uncle. It's like, oh, don't invite him to the party. He's going to be awkward. He's going to say stuff that just goes way too far, and everybody feels uncomfortable, right? Or maybe we've 
understood the Holy Spirit as a force or an it or a power, right? And you know the Holy Spirit's here. You know, it's like, oh, did you get the Spirit? Did you get the Holy Ghost? Because you were really passionate today and you really like seemed more excited than normal. Oh, the Holy Ghost must be on him. And or if somehow if we're like the Holy Spirit's master and he's kind of our lackey and we just, in the name of Jesus, let the power of the Spirit come in and all of a sudden something weird manifests because we invoked the Holy Spirit to come. No. See, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is loving and kind. And it's such a beautiful thing that the Holy Spirit longs to be with us. Holy Spirit longs to teach us the truth about who Jesus is and to empower us in our life. And I'm getting off my notes, so here's what we're going to do. Let's just, oh, hello. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. That's probably where we, what we should do this morning. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. This is the ESV version, English, English Standard Version. And we're going to read all the way to verses 17. This is what the word of the Lord says. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And that's a generic understanding. Scripture was written in a a traditional sense of sons includes women too, okay? Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's amazing, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And so, man, what a rich just portion of scripture that we have for us. And, and I want us to take our experiences, our preferences of who and how we understand the Holy Spirit. And I want us to take Romans 8, chapter 9 through 17 this morning, put on these lenses, and allow Scripture to dictate and help us understand the role of the Spirit's work in our lives as Christians. All right? Can we do that? Can we just say, yeah, that's all right? It's, it's, I'm not going to make anything up. All, all I want to do is help us understand what these verses say to us this morning and apply it to our lives. So, here we go. We're going to go through three things. Of course, there's always three, and I'm gonna, 
We're just going to work what we, what we see Scripture saying here. And the first one is this. In verse 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And what Paul helps us understand here in the first point is that the Holy Spirit confirms our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. Often what we do is if we rely on religion to make us feel good about our position in God, what we do is we look at either our acts, our deeds, the things we've done through the week, our general disposition of how we think of God, of how we treat others, and what we allow that to do is dictate to us our right standing with God. Now, some of those things are, are, are important not to bring us salvation, but they are important as understanding if we have received salvation. They're fruits of salvation, but not the other way around. See, in Christianity, we say Christianity is something that is done to you. Christianity is not something you do. If that were true, anybody could be a Christian. But Christianity is something that has happened to you. If you say, I'm a Christian, it's because God in his glory, God in his kindness, God in his omnipotence stepped down from heaven, reached down, pulled you out of the miry clay, and, and while you still had no clout with God, while you were actually a sinner and you were in enmity, you were an enemy of God, God in his kindness reached down and brought you up, and it wasn't because of your own power, it's in spite of the fact that you were a sinner that God comes in and he transforms you from the inside out. This has nothing to do with anything that you did on your own. And so if we're saying that the seal of understanding that we have been saved is because we were really good and that we deserved somehow for God reaching down, no, what Paul tells us here is that the Holy Spirit is the confirmation of our salvation. Okay, you guys all right? All right, now let me explain it this way. We, we would say that the Holy Spirit is the regenerator of our hearts. What does that mean, that the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates us? Well, that would mean simply that our hearts, before Jesus, before the Holy Spirit comes, is dead, spiritually dead. It's, it's like um, if you were to go to an old, you ever like go to a, a pick-apart place where you have this, your car is like, needs something, some of you girls are looking at me like, what are you talking about? You go to these old junkyards, right? And maybe your, your blinker on the left side of your car has been broken, and you're saying, hey, I know there's a junkyard down there, and uh, there's this part, and it's the exact same match for mine, and I'm going to spend a hundredth of the price that I would ordering it on Amazon, so I'm just going to pull it off, and the guy's like, eh, junk dealer, like four bucks, right? And then you go and you put it on your car. Well, in that junkyard, there are hundreds and hundreds of these old cars. Why are they just sitting there? Because they're no good anymore to turn over. They're dead. The engine is dead. All they're good for anymore is for somebody to come like Bernie and say, hey, I need that part and I'll pick that off and put it on my car. But nobody goes there and tries to sit in a car and go. They don't even go. They just go click and nothing happens. Why? Because the engine, the heart of the car, is completely dead. 
And it's the same for us before we come to Christ, before the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates our hearts. It's the same as if us trying to live in our own strength without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like us sitting in a junkyard of the spiritual life, sitting there and going, all right, I'm going to do this on my own strength, and nothing happens. But it's not until the Holy Spirit comes, and he's like, Gas monkey church guy. I don't know what's these, all these restoration shows we see on the History Channel. He gets passionate about this 1956 Chevy, you know, and he's like, I'm going to paint it blue and white. And yeah, the engine's dead, but I'm going to restore it and I'm going to bring life back to this engine. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that the life comes back to the engine of our lives. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it in our own power. As much, as much as we try to turn that thing, it's just never going to turn over. But the Holy Spirit, what he does is he breathes on our hearts, and all of a sudden, all that old You can see, you can hear it. All the smoke starting to right? I mean, there's a, there's a sermon in there somewhere for that. That's what I'm doing right now. And he, he regenerates us. And so, so he's the seal of understanding that we've been saved. We don't have to go back to all like, I tried to do this on my own work. I tried to do this on my own power. And somehow I just never got there. And so we feel discouraged. No, when the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates our hearts, it comes alive. It comes brand new. All of that rust, all the old oil, all the bugs that crawled in, all of that stuff is like brand new. And it purrs like a kitten. How do we know if the Holy Spirit dwells in us? Well, Paul tells us, he says, the Spirit of Christ is alive in you. Now, is Paul saying that the Holy Spirit and Jesus the Son are the same. Is he trying to say, like, there's some weird sense of what, what some other doctrines would talk about modalism, like all of a sudden God becomes the Father, and then he's no longer the Father, he's then the Spirit, and then he, he stops being the Spirit, and then he becomes the Son. No, we don't believe that. We believe three in one. So what Paul is saying, he's not saying the Spirit and the Son are the same person. They are distinct persons of the Trinity. But what he is saying is, when the Holy Spirit comes alive in you, when the Holy Spirit is birthing you and regenerates your heart and seals your salvation, well, all of a sudden, the Spirit of Christ is in us, and this Spirit of Christ is us being submitted to, us following, us being disciples of Jesus. See, when my heart's been regenerated, I'm automatically living in the Spirit of Christ. This Jesus is my Savior. And it's, it's like they're cyclical. When the Holy Spirit has revived you, then you live in the Spirit of Christ. When you're in the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit's reviving you. And it just continues and continues and continues. And you ask, may ask yourself here this morning, is the Holy Spirit alive in me? And you say, have I been saved? Then yes. Have I been saved? Then the Holy Spirit's alive in me. Have I, is the Holy Spirit alive in me? Yes, then I've been saved. And if I've been saved, then the Holy Spirit's alive in me. And it just keeps going and going and going and going. You guys okay? All right. I think we need to move on to the next point because we're running out of time. But let me say this. The other side of the coin is if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we do not have the Spirit of Christ. And if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, then we do not have salvation. You cannot 
this morning say, I'm a Christian because I go to church, I do these good things, I think about God more than I don't think about, none of that stuff saves you. Let me go back to that point of the only way that you are a Christian, the only way is if the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart. That's it. You could do all this good stuff through the rest of your life. It'll count for nothing. It's only God in his grace reaching down and us submitting, saying, God, I'll follow you. Number two, not only does the Holy Spirit seal and confirm our salvation, but the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Now, we're going to talk about this. Verse 12 through 13, it says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh. That's sin, which the Greek would say sarks. Doesn't it even sound like bad? The sarks, right? We are not debtors anymore to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, Paul is not talking about physical life because we know that for some people in our lives who are actually anti-God may have what would seemingly be better lives than us who put our hope in Jesus. How come they get all the good stuff? How come their 401k is bigger than mine? How come this and this, and they got a boat and they go on this lake, and now it seems like their life's way better than mine, and they're not following Jesus, and Paul is not talking about the physical pleasures or the common grace that God extends to people who don't even call him Savior. He's not speaking of if you live in a sinful way, you're going to experience, you may, you may reap the benefits so to speak, are the consequences of living a sinful life. But what Paul's talking about is a spiritual life. So if it's the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, we have to ask the question, what is sanctification? Okay? So this is a big theoretical, theological doctrine word. And what sanctification means is that we are becoming more like Jesus. That we are in our process of, from the moment we surrendered our life, the Holy Spirit regenerates us. He makes us alive in God, and he takes us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of heaven. We don't just get left there all of a sudden. As a, so to speak, he comes like the great divine mechanic, starts up the engine, and says, okay now, uh, Chevy, uh, 1956 Chevy, go and figure out how to get out of the junkyard all by yourself. You're running now. You got it all. No, what he does is he sits in the driver's seat. He gives it more gas when it needs more clutch. Whenever, whatever. He knows what gear it needs to be in. And so there's this process of the Holy Spirit. Once he sets us free, then he's committed to our maturity. And that's what sanctification is. It's us surrendering to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Okay? So it's this idea that we're not left alone to our own works to figure out our salvation, to figure out our Christianity, to figure out our religion, all that stuff. No, God doesn't set us. He, what he does is he encourages, he walks with us, and he continues to work with us until the day that we go to be in glory in heaven. All right, so there's a few things that we need to understand in the process of sanctification. Number one, and this is what I love about this portion of scripture, Paul tells us that we have been set free from the power of sin. Now, what does that, why does that even matter for us? See, before our hearts were regenerated. Once we were in like the, the junkyard, we had no power in ourselves to overcome sin. We were powerless to defeat sin. 
because it was only the power of our own flesh trying to do good. And the power of our own flesh trying to do good will never measure up to the standard that God requires from us. God requires, believe it or not, perfection. He says, the only way that I will accept you is if you are absolutely perfect. Well, that seems really unfair. What's up with that, God? You know I can't do this. And that's the beauty of it. God knows we couldn't do it. He goes, yeah, I, I know you can do it. So I'm going to send somebody who will do it for you. All you got to do is trust in him, right? That's the story of salvation. And so before Christ, we were powerless to overcome sin. We, we knew we weren't supposed to do it, but we'd try and try and we'd fail every time. But now that the Holy Spirit's come and regenerates and make us a new creation, when sin stares us at the eye, in the eyes and we're at that fork in the road moment where we're deciding, hmm, this looks really tempting. The devil on my shoulder over here is saying, look at that. Ooh, that's amazing, right? And the angel on your shoulder is like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, right? We no longer have to give in to that little red devil. That's not what a devil looks like anyway, by the way. But we no longer have to go, yes, you're right. Like one of those old cartoons when the the pot of stew is cooking and the moose smells it and he's like floating through the air and his nostrils are like really big and the hunter's just waiting. Remember those cartoons, right? He just is powerless. He's powerless to not say no. But now through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been empowered, not by our own strength, but by God himself to be able to say, no, no soup for you, right? You have no power over me anymore. Not only that, but in sanctification, it's not just that we've been empowered, but now we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. See, some of us might say, okay, if the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to change me. He's going to do all the work. All I got to do is sit on the couch, Netflix for, you know, Netflix and binge and do all these kind of things, eat potato chips, all and sit in my mom's basement, play video games all day. I don't have to work on myself at all. And that's not the way sanctification works either. It's a both and. See, God in his loving kindness, this is all about how we said the Holy Spirit, you know, he's not weird. He doesn't like overcome us all of a sudden and then we're like in this trance and you see Betsy walking down the street. What's going on with Betsy? Oh, see, it's the Holy Spirit. No. See, the Holy Spirit comes. Come here, babe. And we're walking, we're walking towards sin. You're, you're walking towards sin, okay? The Holy Spirit comes and says, hey, 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 that's not going to be good for you. See, this is not helpful. You, remember how you said you want to be a disciple of Jesus? You do remember that, right? Yeah, okay. So because I love you and because I care for you and I want you to become more like Jesus, that's what being a disciple, you actually need to turn this way. See, this is the prize over there. Okay, so, and then you start walking. And then sometimes you're like, uh, but, and then the Holy Spirit, hey, hey, just remember. Remember, this is beautiful over here. This isn't beautiful, right? So that's kind of, and so we can, we can resist the, oh, baby, that's so good. We can, we can at times go, I'm, I'm desiring this, and, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and we just go, screw you. And if somehow the Holy Spirit's just going to, like, fix everything, and we're going to no. This, it's a both and where we cooperate. We listen and we obey. Sometimes we do good, sometimes we don't. But that's what sanctification is. And the more that we obey, the more we say,
God, I trust you. Remember this whole thing of the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding? The more we say, yes, Lord, I will listen to your voice. I will do what you, the easier it gets to go. And then what ends up happening, I don't know how this works, is we start desiring the good stuff over the bad stuff. That's just God in his grace. It's so amazing. And then number three, not only do we just cooperate, but uh, the Holy Spirit, I already said this, empowers us to live lives that are free from having to choose sin. Okay, last point. You guys all right? This is a lot of information, I understand. But I want us to get away from this understanding that the Holy Spirit is some weird, ooky-weeky force in the church. And really, you know, how the, you know how the Holy Spirit is alive in your life? It's like, do you think much of Jesus? Do you think more of Jesus in the right way? Do you, do you love Jesus more? Do you want to be more like Jesus? That's how you know the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Do you, do you not want to question everything that God says to you? Do you, do you have a soft heart when, when God's speaking to you about areas of your life that needs to change? Or are you like, no, this is my right, you know, those are evidences of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus. Always. That's why I, if someone comes up and says, I feel like God's saying this, you know, Jeff and Lorelai this morning are partnering together on what the Holy Spirit's telling us. It's always to make us love Jesus more, to point us to Jesus, that Jesus be glorified. It's not so we get some weird feeling, you know? Um, okay, so the last one is, and we're not going to have time for this, I just know it. Number three is that the Holy Spirit replaces fear with adoption. This is so beautiful. Verses 15 through 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, then heirs, that's inheritance, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided with we suffer in order that we may be glorified with him. So it's, I've heard it said that if justification, which means my right standing, me being declared right in God. So what God does is he saves me, and all of a sudden, I am no longer known as a sinner. I am now declared righteous before God. That's the act of justification. If justification is the gate, so to speak, of salvation, adoption is the garden. Isn't that cool? So we, get, we enter in through God's saving work, but then he doesn't just save us and say, okay, you've been saved. Your status is that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're no longer a citizen of the kingdom of darkness and just leave us there. Then he goes, he opens up the gate and he says, hey, look, look inside. Look at all this stuff. All of this garden of salvation, of being a disciple of mine. It's yours to explore, to enjoy to taste, to smell, to see the goodness of God. You know, my, my mother-in-law, when I first, you maybe heard me tell the story, when I first was introduced to my wife's family, I, I remember walking into her house in Roland Heights at 19102 Dayseta Street. And uh, this was, it was the house where everyone could just walk in the door, anybody could sit on the couch, anybody could just be, fam- like you were immediately a family member. And I we, we, we call my uh, mother-in-law Madi, which is Italian, Kumadi, which means uh, uh, godmother. And so she became Madi to everybody, right? And so I'd say, Madi, can I, can I get a glass of milk uh, from the fridge? And she goes, 
if you've ever hung out with my mother-in-law. You don't ask, right? You just go get it. Anything you want from the fridge, you go get. And I'm like, okay, you know. Like, where's the glasses? I don't know, kind of, you know. And, and, it, and I remember being introduced to this family. All of a sudden, I was an outsider, but now, boom, you're immediately part of this family. Anytime you come over to my, my mother-in-law's house, there's just food everywhere, right? She's Italian. She's got to have food. So there'd be food, and then I'd be, oh, no, Mari, I already, it doesn't matter. I know you already, I just made you a little something. <laughs> and I gained 30 pounds after I married my wife. <laughs> and I all of a sudden was transferred from this one status. Now I had the rights to be able to open the fridge as if this was my fridge. And that's what adoption is like in Christ. When we come to him, it's like, all of a sudden, we were, we were in this family, and now we're in this family, and you get all the rights of the family. Um, let, let me explain it this way, especially with this understanding of fear. If you could, imagine there is an orphan living on the street. And this orphan has no parents, no community, no family. He's like Aladdin, you know? And the only thing he can do to get by is to steal, because he's so hungry. And this orphan would evidently, obviously, get caught by the police, is brought in to the courtroom, and is found guilty for stealing, even though that's the only way they can survive. And when we are adopted in Christ, it's as if the judge not only looks at that orphan and says, not only do I absolve you from stealing, but now, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to bring you into my family. I personally, this good judge, I'm going to adopt you. And that orphan might be like, what is going on, right? And then all of a sudden, the lawyer, the advocate who's been appointed for that orphan says, no, trust me, this judge is a good judge. You're not the first person he's adopted. And he doesn't want to adopt you for some weird science experiment, you know, Dr. Moreau kind of stuff. He's adopted you because he wants to bring you into his family. And let me tell you when, you, when you're adopted in this judge's family, all of a sudden you're able to go to his fridge and get anything you want from his fridge. All of a sudden now you, you get his last name. And you don't have to fear anymore. See, you don't have to live on the streets anymore. You don't have to fight for yourself anymore. You don't have to do the good stuff and the bad stuff and you're going to get judged on that. See, this judge now is going to look at you as his own son, as his own daughter, and he's going to give you his name and all the rights that come with his name. Um, man, we're out of time. I, I don't know if we view God that way. You know, Paul says, Abba, Father. It really means daddy. My kids have outgrown that word daddy. Right, Asia? I'm about to embarrass you in front of all your friends right now. I honestly, I honestly wish, though, I mean, sometimes, I mean, not, I'm not going to make my, my kids do this. Even my nine-year-old has grown out of daddy. He's, he calls me dad now, and that's okay. But there's times where I just wish, even, like, when, if Asia's 60, she'll still call me daddy, you know? Why? Because I'm her daddy. And it goes beyond this father, right, this formal fatherness. And so when, G, when Paul says the spirit of adoption lets us cry out to God as Abba, as Daddy, 
I think we have to move away from this formal understanding that God is our father and he's very formal and he's like the Von Trapp dad. And and we all line up. Yes, father. (laughs) And march out of the room. Religion must be organized. You know, bull loney. You know that Jesus called the father daddy every time? He used the word Abba every time he would speak about him. The only time Jesus never used that word is when he was on the cross. And he used the word father, Elohim. And I think it's such a beautiful picture for us. Jesus called the father, the formal father Elohim, so that we could call him daddy. Isn't that beautiful? Why do we need to revert to God as this? Formal, grumpy father. Let me, can you put that picture I have up there? Where is it? Okay. Who is this? Who are these people? That's my dad on the left who looks like Bruce Lee. I told you you look like Bruce Lee. I don't know. This is, he's probably like 20 years old here in this picture. Uh, and then that's my grandmother on the right. Now, do they look related to you? No. My dad's eyes are a little bit different than my grandma's eyes. A little bit more Asian looking. My grandma's a little bit more Caucasian looking. And if you were to look at that man on the left and say, what is his name? You would say, David Chang, right? <laughs> his, his Korean given name by the American government because he was adopted was Young Park. He never, ever once was addressed as Young Park. He was also always Tom Monahan. If you look at that person, you wouldn't think, his name must be Tom Monahan. <laughs> That's my grandma on the right, Mary Monahan. And see, the beautiful thing is, when my dad got adopted, He got adopted into the Monaghan family. He didn't know who his parents' real parents' biological were. He didn't know his grandmother and grandpa and cousins and siblings. All of a sudden, he's brought into the Monaghan family, Pennsylvania Dutch. Nobody looked at him and goes, who's this little Asian boy? They said, that's Tom Monaghan. My dad had the privilege of growing up every summer on a farm, milking cows with his uncle, a Monaghan driving tractors because it was the Monaghan farm. Nobody said, oh, that's that orphan kid. No, that's Tom Monaghan. I'm a Monaghan because my dad was adopted by the Monaghans. Nobody looks at me and goes, oh, that's that kid, kid's son who was adopted, Take Young Park. No, they look at me and they go, Kelly Monaghan. My daughter, Asia, is a Monaghan. Nobody looks at her and goes, that's the great-grandchild of blah, blah, No, that's Asia Monaghan. Why? Because my grandma brought her, him into her family with the name and all the rights of what it means to be a Monaghan. You know, I have like all these books waiting for me in Michigan. My dad just passed and he said, son, I want you to have, he's, he's got a library of books. That's my inheritance. Part of it. I get to go back there and get all these books 
and, and a, a treasure trove of commentaries that would make some of the biggest scholars just sin and lust. <laughs> and I get to go back and bring that all home. Why? Because my dad became a Monahan. And for those of us here sitting this morning and saying, no, my relationship with God is based on me being good and I have to continue to be good. And if I don't be good anymore, there's this fear in me that God's going to expel me from his family. And maybe the family of God will expel me from their family. And that's not the way it works, friends. See, when we've been adopted by God, we're brought into the family. We're all brothers and sisters. No one looks at you and goes, oh, you, you're that adopted kid. Because we're all adopted. We all have the same dad. We all have the same privileges. We all have the same rights. Will you stand with me?